Good evening, everyone. Good to be together and good to be back in our study of Ecclesiastes. We will, at some point, get to chapter 8 tonight, but there's a little bit in chapter 7 it'd be good for us to talk about since we didn't quite get to it. We um, referenced it or teased it just a little bit last week. So let's start tonight by reviewing a little bit of chapter seven. I, before we do that, I have to say the rave reviews that this, this class as in these people continue to get as people text me and reach out to me saying, the people in the class have such great comments, and I love hearing their insights. Those continue to pour into me, to which I say, I know, I'm very lucky. Thank and so do not let those reviewers down tonight. Keep, keep strong with your comments and your thoughts. They are really carrying our class. So in chapter 7, some closing thoughts. Right around, I think we were kind of... Um, Around verse 25, right? We kind of made it to that point. And we consider this question, the bad things that can happen to you in your life. And there's a whole spectrum of bad things that can happen to you. Like stubbing your toe is on there somewhere. Uh, like running out of gas is probably like higher up. It's more inconvenient. And, and you, you, we could make a whole list of these things, right? And probably... Probably at number one on bad things that can happen to you in your life would be that you could die. That's probably, we would put number one would be to die. But Solomon doesn't, doesn't do that. So I think, you know, Solomon is more, he's like number three would be death. Be a bad thing that can happen to you in your life. Number two would be bitter death. Somewhat a little bit worse than just average normal death. But there's something even more bitter than this that he starts to talk to us about and it is the woman whose heart is snares and, is, and whose hands are fetters. Is that the language he uses as well? Whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. So let's consider this image Solomon takes us to. Why is this worse, more bitter than death to encounter this woman and I think in implied to, to be ensnared by her would be the worst thing that could happen to you basically in life. It's worse than dying is to come across this woman and become so ensnared or fettered by her. what happened to Solomon and his many wives, they pulled his heart from God. And that's, I think, can be one of the main things about that is pulling not just our attention, but our, you know, our devotion and all that. Okay, great. So the thought being that Solomon's speaking maybe from experience here and that I, Solomon's saying, I've come into contact with one or more of these women and it ruined my life in some aspects, so sharing that aspect to us. I kind of see it backwards, or however you want to count it. An evil woman uh -huh. can lead to bitter death, which can lead to absolute death, if you let it lead to that. 
that makes sense? Absolutely, I'm following you there, yeah. Keith, I think Carrie had something as well, just while you're there. Somebody over here, I'll roam over. Yeah, well said, the, the, uh, this horrible woman here has, has indicated, let's get Carrie and then I'll have you jump in here. Um, uh, she a, can lead to your death in some ways. Sorry, yeah, Carrie. I, I, I like that. Um, the comment I was just gonna make was, to me, the woman whose heart is snares is just a personification of evil. Mm -hmm. That, you know, for one, if you're focused on evil, it's going to lead to death, bitter death and death. But in contrast, the one who's pleasing to God isn't snared by this woman because that person's focus is on God, not on evil. Absolutely. Yeah, Bruce? stolen waters, stolen bread, and, and all of these other things that happen. Uh, I think back also to Joseph, you know, who Potiphar's wife attempted to ensnare him, but all the things that happened to him as a result of him being trapped, so to speak. Uh, but Solomon here, uh, I think, tells us that when we become involved with someone like this, there are far more bitter things that we will drink, such as the wrath of the husband if she's married, uh, the wrath of her, uh, the guilt of how she conducts herself in public. But just a, a long list of things uh, that if we become ensnared by the beauty of a woman's outward appearance rather than her inside appearance, can just destroy our, our lives. And unlike Yeah, great. So kind of two tracks, maybe we're running down with the comments here. You know, one being, yeah, this woman sounds very similar to this adulterous woman. Solomon will really describe in detail in Proverbs, warning the young man about if you get caught up with her and here's all, and she's got different tactics and different ways to get your attention and reel you in. Um, whether, you know, it con confusing you and deceiving you about how harmless this will be, how easy it will be, how fun this will be, how great it will be, that, that that's a problem. But then what Carrie said as well, even, you know, in that description in Proverbs, this woman pictured both there and here in some ways stands in as this symbolic manifestation of evil. Any kind of sin which still operates on the same way, right? It is alluring to us. It tries to surprise us. It tells us it won't be a big deal. No one will know. You actually have been working really hard. You deserve this. This will actually be better for you. You know, sin just operates in the way that that woman does in some degrees. And so, yeah, I think it's fair to say this is not only restricted here to kind of the immorality that's maybe more directly talked about in Proverbs so that's definitely a clear example, but it, it could be broader here too. 
And maybe um, in terms of answering in what way she's worse than bitter death, um, back, so we're keep referencing Proverbs. Um, and in chapter five, we hate to miss the fact that it speaks of an adulterous woman, again, possibly somewhat symbolic, but certainly true in the very literal way. So her, you know, she's very attractive in verse four, in the end, she is as bitter as wormwood. Um, verse five, her steps go down to death. So if you're if you're with her, you're headed for death, and that's all very um, that's going to be a bad end. But maybe in the way that it's worse, it goes on to describe that your whole life, if you're given over to that kind of thing, chasing that kind of thing, your whole life is going to be bitter. Um, you're giving your years to the cruel one. Your flesh and your body are consumed, and so it sounds like to me that sounds worse than death to me. Yeah, absolutely. So we're starting to, to get to that question too. How could this be actually worse than death? Well, you know, ruining your life, living in this living death state, living your life poorly even is worse than bitterly dying because a righteous person could die bitterly. They have before. We, we know that to be the case. And yet they, they are overcomers in that at some point, right? But someone who is not making the right use of their life, who has ruined it, maybe literally through an adulterous woman and being ensnared by that, not being able to get out. Is it, po is it possible to be involved with a woman like this and then to repent and then, and then put that off and not go back to it? That's absolutely possible. We wouldn't say, no, like if, once you're in, you can't get out. Now, the scripture is clear here. I think it's really hard. And especially in Proverbs, he describes how crafty this woman is, how crafty sin is, and how it just keeps a hold of you. It doesn't make it easy to get away. But there's nothing about like, hey, if you do this one time, you're done. This concept of you go down this road, you, will, you very easily will be stuck here. And you will be living your life in a terrible way, in an improper way, and that's worse than dying bitterly. Uh, one thing that just came to me is, is when you ask, you know, how is this worse than death? Well, define death. You know, which type of death are you talking about? If we're talking about a physical death, then yes, it's far much worse because this ultimately is separation from God, which is way worse than a physical death. It's more of an eternal death. Great point. What death are we talking about? Um, you know, if that bitter death is just leaving this life under the sun, and if this woman takes you to a far worse death, a true spiritual death, that's clearly worse, right, as well. Um, some will find Solomon to be, he's not politically correct in our, in our current culture, right? The way that he will use a woman to depict kind of this sinful person, this enticing figure. Um, do not be put off by that. Solomon also used the picture of lady wisdom in Proverbs to, to epitomize the type, this ideal that we should be pursuing and all the good things that lady wisdom does, how she's so much better than the adulterous woman of chapter seven. So Solomon doesn't have it out for women here, and it's like, you got to steer clear of women because they're worse than bitter death, that they'll just they'll mess up your life. That is not, it is not so base of a description as that. There is, there is more 
power to this here. But, and, and I will speak directly to men here for a minute, there's a little bit of truth here that we can see on a certain level when we use this type of imagery, right? Even consider Adam and Eve, where Paul writing to Timothy, really talking about something else, points out to Timothy that Eve was the one who was deceived. Adam was not deceived. And so there's implications from that. And you kind of keep reading like, okay, what's that mean for Eve and for women? But you stop for a minute and you think, wait, so Adam was not deceived about what he was doing in the same way Eve was. What caused him to still do this? He was not deceived, Paul says, like Eve was. And so and, and what you can surmise is that there was something about his interaction with Eve that when he weighed his options here, he chose, I'm going to do what she's asking me to do here. He did not have the same misunderstanding that she does, Paul says to Timothy. And so take that as you will. Final thoughts in chapter 7. What jumps out to you from 27 through 29? Let me read it real quick here while you also scan it. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among these I've not found. See, this alone I have found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. So a little uh, interesting language, kind of wordy in a way we don't usually talk here, but anything that you say like, wow, that's powerful, or that is insightful, or that's a nugget that, you know, I haven't considered before from those verses there. Yeah, Keith, you want to go over there to dad? I was just thinking about the worse than death thought for a minute and you know sometimes we can do things we shouldn't do and come to ourselves afterwards and recognize that's something we should not have done but we can't undo what happened because of the thing that we did and I think that might be an example of something that's worse than death we have to live with that now here's something that we did we shouldn't have done it we know we shouldn't have done it but there it is, and we feel really bad about it, and probably all our life, it, from time to time, haunts us, and that's, that's just, that's a bad place to be. Absolutely. Um, there's, there's individuals from Scripture, you think about Esau, right? Esau sells his birthright, he counts it worthless, this inheritance, this part of the promise, because he wants some food, and the scripture, Hebrew writer will tell us that later he tried to get it back and was crying with tears, and he could not undo what he had done, right? Even though he, he now saw, oh, that was a bad mistake, I should have never done that, but it's done, and it tormented him, the Hebrew writer indicates. Carrie? Um, regarding verse 29, I, I guess the thought that came to me is God made man perfect, but man chose something different. So it emphasizes the choice that men have in pleasing God or pleasing themselves. I, I like that. That verse two is incredibly succinct, but there is a lot there. 
like you said, that God made man perfect. But man, and mine says it's, he sought out many schemes. Some of you may have a slightly different wording there. Yeah, I mean, we, the big we, we humankind, as through the ages have wrestled with, you know, what, you know, what, what we know about like sin and is it inherited and how much free will do we really have and does God make us do things and different religions wrestle with that and argue with that and people debate and then we have different sects of religion that believe different things about that and to me this seems very clear that God made man perfect, upright, but man does what he wants to do. He seeks out schemes he changes himself from perfect into something imperfect. Um, this is and this one is not hard to understand. There's not a lot of words here. We're like, I'm not sure what the word here or the meaning of this. This is pretty straightforward, I think, and really strikes home. And what did God do when he created us? And what have we done in response? And I, I don't know how to argue with it very much. It seems, it seems powerful and it seems clear to me. Bruce. And in this idea of being created perfect in God's sight and going to inventions, how many times did God comment on man's behavior to say things like this never even came to my mind that someone would do? And it just, it just shows the fallibility uh, of man to reject the light as they did Christ and, and prefer the darkness. And that darkness has been shown time and time again, something that even God winced at, that how could someone, new, or the King James uses inventions, how could someone invent something like this? Throwing your children into idols, into the pit, uh, and things that it's hard for even us today to comprehend. Yeah, really underscoring that word schemes there. So, yeah, it's not painting the picture of, you know, God made man upright and there's a hundred things that man should be doing and man does 99 of them, but there's one that man kind of trips up on a little bit. No, it's man is out here scheming and like inventing wildly different ideas for how we should live, how we should treat other men. It's, it's so far from, from the uprightness that God makes us with. So, yeah, we are... We are in quite a need of redemption and salvation. This verse makes it quite clear, I think. Yeah. Well, you said just, it, it, that's what hit me out of this. David said, there is none righteous, no, not one. And he went on, you know, for a paragraph about how spiritually depraved man had gotten. But to get into and. This may be just a small window, a glimpse at what God has to come with the Messiah. Because if he's looking around and he's saying, man, I can barely find a single person, one of a thousand, that's any good. And then we find out that in the New Testament, who was it, Paul, that repeated what David said and said, but Jesus is here to take care of that. So that that is kind of what I was thinking too, that, okay, this may be actually prophetic without trying to be prophetic. Yeah, well said. 
Any other thoughts on chapter 7 before we kind of move it to 8? Chapter 8, in some ways, is... It's not like a greatest hits chapter, but it's just going to bring back some thoughts, we, some themes we've talked about a little bit, maybe come at them in a different way somewhat, but there's not incredibly new themes kind of we're seeing in chapter 8. Chapter 8 kind of starts with this brief little poem, who is like the wise and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine and the hardness of his face is changed. And in verse 2, I say, keep the, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. And so, you know, commentators differ a little bit about what's going on in that first part. Is that verse 1, what, is that kind of a, a well-known saying of the day that Solomon's kind of referencing here? Like, we all know this, the, you know, the poem about the wise man. Who's like the wise? And then he says, now here's what I say, kind of building on that. Or is this Solomon just kind of using, he wants to speak in kind of poetic form for the kind of introduce this chapter and then launches into some more direct things. It does not change the meaning either way. It does not change the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit says to Solomon, I want you to use kind of a common proverb to start this chapter and then, and then share these thoughts as well. Or let me just give you some unique thoughts as well. So I don't, I don't find it especially troubling either way, just how it's formatted. But then let's, the thought, keep the king's command, which is easily to connect that this is a wise thing to do. We just, who is like the wise? The next verse, so I say, keep the king's command. Why should we be subject to the king? Uh, the, chapter eight will give us a few thoughts. Scripture has others that you're welcome to draw from. Why should we be subject to the king? He's ordained by God. And he's got power. Yeah. If you don't, uh, something might happen to you. He, he's got power to change your life and for the worse. He's the king after all, right? Uh, and the way he says it, you know, for the word of the king is supreme, who may say to him, what are you doing? I mean, he's the king. There's not really someone that gets to say like, what are you doing? Stop doing this because he's the guy that says that to everyone else. You know, there's, there's no one else to, to check him. His word is law. So he is ordained. And he can, uh, it can affect you if you don't. Does anyone, kind of on that concept of being ordained, in verse 2, mine says, I've got English standard, I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Does anyone have a different rendering of verse 2 there? Yeah, Derek's got something. My version says, I say, <clears throat> keep the king's commandment for the sake of your oath to God. Aha. And so this is one where it makes me look a little sideways at the Hebrew scholars. Like, okay, you're saying it's one of these two things. They're very different, though. Which one is it? So keep the king's command because God has made an oath to him. Or keep the king's command because you have made an oath to him. And so, either way, does it change our responsibility, do we think? Is it any different? Could, could we say, I haven't made an oath to the king, so I 
don't have to do this. We don't really do that in our culture, right? We don't kind of make, we don't swear fealty like in the days of old. The way the verse is worded reminds me of, uh, you know, children obey your parents because this is the first command with promise. Uh, the idea of it is both a command, but also there is an, a promise. There's, there's both the oath to God and then God's promise to you back. Interesting. Yeah, that's a good point that you need to do it because it's the right thing to do, but there's actually a benefit as well covered here for sure. If we stay with kind of, again, I don't think it changes the, 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 the meaning or our obligations because we're commanded to keep the king's command. That's the command, right? And the, there you go. Absolutely. Um, this is a, this is a big deal to King David, this concept of showing respect to the one God that has an oath with, right? The anointed is what David will have a big, a big, uh, I don't know what I'm trying to say here. It's very important to him, right? You see that in his life, though pursued by Saul, he will not raise his hand against the Lord's anointed. And even when he takes his jug or he cuts his robe, it, it kind of later he's like, I think that might have been too disrespectful. I think I shouldn't have even done that because this is God's anointed. The Psalms that David writes, many of the Psalms kind of have often three types of people in them. There's the righteous people that, that show up a lot in some of David's Psalms. There are people who sin, which again is everyone. So, some, so people try to, they try to be righteous. At times they sin. They want to come back and be righteous. But then there's the wicked, and they are different from people who sin, from people who just commit iniquity at times. The wicked, like in Psalms 2, they reject God's anointed. And David couches them in a whole different category because of what they do and talks about that they will receive far harsher treatment. Those are the people that get shattered and destroyed in horrible descriptions. It's often not those that commit sin and repent and come back and try to be righteous. It's those that reject the anointed one of God that David treats severely and writes about it severely as well. And so... You know, should our attitude be different? You know, our rulers, our kings, we don't have the one-to-one -one comparison, maybe with that we would say Israel would have, where their anointed king is literally, has oil poured on him by God's prophet and oracle on earth and said, this is my selected leader. Our kings come to power in different ways, but is there authority from, from any different source? Yeah. Of course, Romans 13 tells us that we should be subject to governing authorities because God's the one who gave them their authority. <laughs> yep. This comes up a lot in Scripture, Romans 13. Uh, not a great, not an easy time to be subject to a king, uh, Romans 13, right? Not a nice king. Um, kind of hard to hear maybe for those Christians. But yeah, let's unpack that, I guess, I think we're all in agreement. No one is saying, I don't really see it. But when does this actually become difficult? 
you know, in this country, we will talk at times, like there's things we may not like about our leaders, their decisions, some of the policy paths they send us down, and we have opinions about that, and that's fine, you know. But, you know, when does it become hard to be subject to the king? And, and what does it look like to be out of subjection, I guess, to the king? Like, what would that look like, and what's, how do we avoid that? A good example of that was Daniel. You know, when, when, when he was given the instructions to eat certain foods, and, and he's like, no, I'm not going to go against what God had said. And so that idea of when, the, when, when it's difficult, comes difficult for us, is when the king gives an ordinance that goes against God's wishes. Yes, when the king gives an ordinance that goes against God's wishes, we would not obey them. Is it possible to be subject to a king but not obey everything that they say? And what, what does that look like? You don't have to answer that question if you had something else first. <clears throat> the passage here affects us today in the way that Paul expressed that we are to honor the king, we are to pray for the king, we are to obey the king. And Peter, over in his first letter, also says that we ought to uh, show our conduct among the unbelievers or the Gentiles so that they won't have anything to say against us. So we know that we're going to get human words, good leaders and bad leaders, those we like, those we don't like. But we begin to violate what God has said when we show open rebellion to the king or whoever is over us whether that be by an open display of, of protesting or ranting uh, on social media or whatever, we're displaying that, that we are, in a sense, rebelling against God and those whom he set over us. It's very important for us, I think, in this day to truly take to heart what, what is said about praying for our leaders. We need to pray for good leaders, and those that are bad, we need to pray for God that we may continue to live godly lives before him and before others and present our example not as someone who likes to create controversy and uh, incite others to participate with us. And I think that's, that's what he's saying here. The king, uh, you don't say, well, what are you doing? Who are, <laughs> why are you doing that? If he's doing something that's against God's law, Jesus said, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar, and to God the things that are God. We need to pray, not rebel. That's a great point. And it's, it's especially hard. Go ahead. I'll, I'll hold that thought. I, mean, I was just going to say, you could look at some of the examples that we do have. Uh, you know, for instance, one that's already been mentioned, uh, Daniel, but also uh, like we've already mentioned as well, King David. I mean, David didn't, Saul told David he needed to die. David didn't just agree with that and say, okay, I'm out of respect for you, O king, I'll die now. Um, he disagreed with that opinion or command of the king, 
but he was still respectful for the king. He didn't try and overthrow the king or harm the king in any way. Uh, but like Bruce was saying, he showed, he showed respect to the king and the, the authority that he was given. A great point. It can be hard, hard for us. We've got a certain level of agency kind of in our government that some back, in, back then might not have had. Go ahead, Sam. You know, in some of these, I'm, I'm wondering if maybe the, the terms that are used are meant uh, as a figure of speech, like metonymy or something like that, where maybe the point could be more respect the office God established authority, Romans 13. We may not necessarily like someone who is a scoundrel that got voted in or appointed in, or if they're the prince and daddy dies, now they become king. We may not like their person, but we should respect the office uh, because, again, by the same token, you know, God established authority. He may not have established every single type of authority or type of ruling system around the world um, because some we know are just not, they're not ideal. Um, but I like to look at it from the standpoint of if, if we respect authority and at least respect the office, you know, maybe the next guy that's in that office is very good makes it easier for us to respect the office. Maybe the guy that's in there right now is not so good, makes it more difficult. However, respecting the office and not letting the guy who happens to be in the office at the time kind of shield that from us or, or cause us to turn away may be an easier way to look at it than getting hung up on the actual person, fallible that they might be. Yeah, great point. Maybe just to add two words to what Bruce said, because I agree with that. Um, the in that uh, the idea that we're going to display any kind of dishonor toward you know appointed government um, is really incompatible with anything that a Christian should be about, and it's incompatible with what we try to teach our children. We say we we need to have authority for God's king. Who's God's king? Psalm two says it's Jesus. It's like, but we we badmouth the the king or the the president of our land. It's very incompatible. Imagine what kind of example that sets for our children. It doesn't set them up to want to have the right kind of respect for for their lord. Um, and to your point, in David and in the Psalms, pointing out the wicked are the ones that are going to set themselves up against. Try to. Just, lodge themselves against God and against his anointed. Um, and we should have no part of that. Absolutely. Yeah. If we are, res if we respect the office, if we respect authority, what, what are we acknowledging? Where does authority come from? Um, Solomon in his life, we don't have all of his life. What we have in the scripture, there's a time where Solomon does not do this well. There's a time in Solomon's life where he finds out that someone else is going to become king after him and is anointed to become king. And it's, it's not his boy. It is someone else. And he tries to kill him. It is very compatible to Saul and David where, where Solomon learns about Jeroboam and that he has been anointed and what God has in store for him. And in a 
In a tragic messianic picture, Jeroboam, the newly anointed king, has to flee to Egypt for a few years to escape. And Solomon gets to play the part of Herod in that picture, chasing him out, rejecting God's plan for authority. It's hard. It's even hard for Solomon because it, it's easy when we like the king and it's easier or it's, it's less hard when we can abide by the king at least. But if the king is in opposition to what we want, and maybe not even what God wants, what we want, it's easy to, to get ruffled and to not really want to be part of this and to push back. Um, and yet we're advised here not to do that. Be not hasty to go from the king's presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause for he does whatever he pleases. And that evil cause here, that I don't believe is indicated that, like, don't take a stand when he's doing something wrong. That's not really what he's saying. I think he is saying, don't take a stand with those who'd be rising up against the king. That's an evil cause to try to overthrow him, this one that God has established. You might disagree with him. Don't, don't be part of the insurrection. Don't be part of the rebellion to overthrow him. Don't take that stand. Nowhere does he say, just do whatever he says. If he's wicked, just do wickedness with him. What can you do? That's not implied here. But it's not for us to relieve him of his authority. Who will do that when he decides it's right? God will do that. And, and that's really a big part of um, kind of the, the next part of the chapter. What problem is presented uh, in verses 10 and 11? I'll read it here. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This is also vanity because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily. The heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. So what problem is pictured for us here? What bad thing happens which leads to some other consequences here? Absolutely, he says that the sentence against evil is not executed speedily. So I'm, I'm out here seeing the wicked and everyone else is seeing it and nothing happens. And another day goes by and nothing happens. And maybe eventually something happens to them, maybe years later, I don't know. It's not fast. Just as not, and because it's not fast, he says everyone sees that. And the, our hearts, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. So now we're, we're, we're presented with another potential problem, right? Are we blaming God for something here? It's all one saying, God has not figured out how to do this right, and it's really tripping us up. If he would just bring down the hammer fast, we wouldn't have this problem. We wouldn't be set to evil. But it's because he doesn't execute speedily we're stuck in this, or is, is there a different take we're supposed to be pulling out of this? Because he says, because it doesn't happen quickly, that affects our heart in some way. How do we, how do we walk away with this verse, do we think? Yeah, Mitch. I think, I think based on the verse, we're kind of making, uh, it, with that uh, you know, idea being thrown out, you would kind of be making an assumption that God's the one who would be delivering the justice. It might be man who's slow to deliver the justice in this instance. Okay. So it could be either source, maybe. So maybe Solomon's saying man is slow to execute judgment on men. Maybe because man is wicked and man doesn't 
see a need to punish wickedness. Man's kind of on board for it. I like that thought. What other thoughts do you, do you find here? How do we wrestle with this verse and put it in our life and be benefited by it? Do we want expeditious judgment in our own life? Do you, have you ever prayed for that? That God would punish you far faster the next time you do something wrong and, and far more severely because this is the fifth time you've done this thing and you really need to like get over it. Do we, do we ask for that for ourselves? Have you ever asked for that one time? You might have, but... I'm curious if we, if this is something we look at in others, but somehow never in our own life. I mean, isn't that part of the fear of what happened to Ananias and Sapphira? Is that, you know, okay, you had the one chance and then you're punished immediately. That's true. That did happen. And it, and it caused, so, so now you sound like you're arguing for, for my first point. It seemed to have a great effect. So why doesn't God do that more often? Should he be doing it more often? We, we would, yeah, would there be any of us left to, to be annoyed at how long it's taking? I, you know, we would not be around. Yes, yeah, Sam. So it, it, it may seem it's in some way that we're waiting on God to be punishing people, but... I don't know how, how I read it. I think it's talking about men in the justice system that men have not executing justice speedily enough because then as we move on, he says, but you know what? Even though it looks like you can get away with all this, like all these other people are, you still live for God because God's going to take care of the real judgment in the end. Yeah, it's well said, and kind of leading into that the next few verses, where he does say, man, I look at the wicked, and he, he does all these things, and he prolongs his days, but I know he's not really prolonging his days, and it sounds like he's contradicting himself a little bit, but that's the statement he makes. We'll have to go to our Lord's direction to us that when we pray and ask forgiveness, we need to forgive people. I speak only in my case, but I thank God very humbly and appreciatively that he's long-suffering with me and has been, uh, if I were to experience the wish that some have, that God would act immediately. I might condemn someone whose heart would later repent. That's well said. And then that's, that's a wise approach, right? And that's not our instinctual uh, reaction always. It's interesting he says that it's the children of man that set their heart to do evil when they notice how slow punishment seems to come. It's, I find that interesting. He doesn't say man. It says the children of men, the more foolish, the unwise possibly, the ones that don't know how to handle this yet, they act and we would be children if we were to have a same response. Sorry, go ahead. I sort of had this thought, and I don't know how off it is or not, but when you look at the aspect, because the sentence against the evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sins of men is fully set 
in them to do evil, is it because whether we look at it in the aspect of men rendering judgment and those who see that judgment not being done fast enough um, look at it, do they themselves become judges of those who are failing to judge and ultimately who's the judge? Or then even if we look at it in the sense as of, you know, looking at it as God is not rendering judgment on these expediently enough, then are we becoming judges of God? So. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. There, if we begin to defiantly question God's ways, and that, that'll kind of get us to our closing thought here. What are we, who are we really questioning, right? Kind of to this point, um, we will remember the story, the account. It's not a story. It actually happened of David kind of being out in, in, the, in the wild for a while and encountering a Nabal and saying, hey, I, I've been protecting your workers for a while from bandits. Could we have some, some payment? My, my men and Nabal disrespects him terribly. Who are you? Get out of here. I don't, I don't have anything for you. And David tells his guys, okay, let's go take care of this guy. Everyone get your sword. We're going to go decimate them all. And Nabal's wonderful wife, Abigail, comes and stops David, talks to him, and he thanks her. And the big thing he thanks her for is like, thank you because I was about to take vengeance on my own with my own hand. And that would have been really wrong for me to have done that. You, can't, you let me leave it with God and let him deal with this disrespect. You let him deal with the wicked one here. And he's very grateful to her for that. Kind of our closing thought here, you might have seen if you were coming in, um, I titled tonight's Wisdoms, The Ups and Downs. We talked a lot about the ups here, all the benefits of wisdom. It will help you with your king. It will help you have a better outlook on being prepared when things happen that seem unfair. But Solomon's very candid about the, the, the limits that wisdom can offer you when it comes to a certain thing. And really that being... Um, having to understand exactly how God is working, exactly why he's doing what he does, exactly why it's taking so long for his judgment. And so he says, there is a limit and you can keep trying to figure out all of this with wisdom and just learn more and try to just know his mind completely, but you never will. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. There is a limit to what we can know about God and his mind and his ways. And Solomon would say that should be a comfort and you should stop breaking your back to try to figure him out completely. Not just throw up your hands and stop searching for him, but recognize our wisdom will never touch his and that's by design. Even the wise man cannot find it out. Thank you everyone. I see a mass of people ready to come in in the back. So we'll stop for tonight. Matt Dow is going to be leading the class next week while we're out of town. So be ready to talk about chapter nine with Matt next week. Thanks everyone.